One of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, who was a prolific writer and professor of English at Oxford University, uh, emphasized in his book, Mere Christianity, that logically there are only three possible positions to hold concerning who Jesus was and is. Uh, one could say he's a liar, one could say he was a lunatic, or one must be forced to realize he in fact is Lord. Um, so those who decide they want to explain away the impact of Jesus' person, his words, his ministry, his effect on culture, uh, could say that he just was lying. He was lying, Clay, about being the Son of God, lying about being the basis of eternal life. That's one logical possibility. It's blasphemous and incorrect, but that logically is one possibility. A second logical possibility would be rather than lying and trying to fool other people, he was a lunatic. He really was self-deluded. He was fooled about himself, sincere in his claims, but just sincerely wrong. So C.S. Lewis said three logical options for who Jesus was. He could have been a liar, he could have been a lunatic, or he could have been one other one. What was the other one? Yeah, he could have been and is, in fact, the Lord. And I would say, yeah, reality forces you to Christ and a knowledge of Christ and what he's done and specifically what the resurrection of Christ means radically revolutionizes our concept of what reality all, really is all about. To be unaware or to deny who Jesus is and to deny his uh, resurrection is not to embrace bravely a brave new world of scientific options. It is to deny reality. But here's the question. Jesus could have been a liar, could have been a lunatic, could have been the Lord. Uh, but what superlative, supernatural calling card, Ken, did he leave us to validate his claim so that we would confidently know he wasn't a liar or a lunatic. Uh, what unique supernatural deed, Lori, could this person have done to possibly prove his audacious claims? Well, no surprise, uh, we're talking about something that makes Jesus unique, and that's his literal bodily supernatural resurrection. The reason I always use all those modifiers is because theologians who don't believe in a literal bodily supernatural resurrection will get into pulpits in, in liberal churches and say they believe in the resurrection. But they define the resurrection as just the fact that the impact of Jesus lives on after his death. His influence continues after his death. They dumb down the definition so they can use the words laymen want to hear and laywomen want to hear. But just to be clear, uh, the unique claims of Jesus have been uniquely validated by the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ revolutionizes everything. And it not only makes us savable, but it allows us to put the now, which is real and which is important. And if preachers give you the impression the now is not real and not important, Raising those kids you've got, Ray, is, is probably the most important discipleship work you'll ever do. It's real. It's important. But the now, Colin, even though it's real and important, 
it's not ultimate and it's only temporary. And the resurrection of Christ validates not only Jesus' claims, but also the whole reality of the not yet, of the heavenly metaphysical reality that we're all built for and we all yearn for, especially as we get older and all our friends get promoted before we do. <laughs> uh, so the reality of the resurrection of Christ revolutionizes everything about reality. That's what we're going to think about today from our passage in John. Uh, but before we dive in there, let's pray for our teachability and our troops. Uh, I've got the same thing I think Dale has. Uh, the last three or four days, I haven't felt very well, and then my, my voice goes away as the last step. So I'm pretty sure based on previous experience, I'm not contagious, uh, and I'm actually going to be really feeling good in the next day or two, but right now I sound worse than I've sounded in the last three or four days. So don't panic. I hope the tenor of my voice is not too irritating, but sometimes it actually keeps people awake, which is always a good thing around here. So we're going to count on that. But let's pray for uh, teachability to God's word and then always uh, it's our custom for our troops, peace officers and firefighters. And Eric Ward, I'm going to ask you to pray in that direction for us, okay? pray for our troops. You know, I'm, I'm looking at David and Matt, and uh, uh, we know a lot of these folks, men and women all over the world, but uh, we've got a couple with us on a regular basis. We're very honored and thankful for, for you guys and what you do for us and your families. Uh, somebody said that Thanksgiving is good, but thanks living is better. And, you know, I always say that uh, we don't just celebrate the resurrection of Christ on Easter we celebrate it in a special way the first day of the week, every week. But really, Savannah, to live a, a normative biblical Christian life, you've got to be centered on the resurrected Christ every day. And really, Thanksgiving is, uh, it, it was you know, designed to be a Christian American holiday uh, where the pilgrims got together to thank the Indians for all the help they gave them. Now, uh, the Indians kind of crashed the party, if you know the whole story, although they, Squanto was very helpful but uh, Thanksgiving is good, but Thanksgiving is the challenge. Rather than an attempt at a semi-funny top five list this morning, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you five fast facts about the resurrection of Christ since our passage is all about how the resurrection of Christ revolutionizes reality. Uh, number one, the resurrection of Christ is a miracle, not a myth. Now, Richard Dawkins, the world's greatest atheist, has never seen a resurrection, so he doesn't believe in resurrection. Uh, well, I've never seen Richard Dawkins, so I don't believe in Richard Dawkins. That doesn't really prove anything necessarily. Uh, it's, it's unabashed, unapologetically something you can't reproduce in a laboratory or a hospital or an ER or an operating suite. You just can't do it. It's a miracle, not a myth. But it has been validated. Let's look at a couple of passages on this real quick. Look at 2 Peter. If you got your phone, you'll get there before the rest of us flipping in a book will get there. But that's okay. It'll teach you some patience. 2 Peter chapter 1. And this is toward the end of Peter's life. 
as an apostolic church founding missionary individual who ends up being crucified upside down in Rome in his quest to become rich and famous, which wasn't what the apostles were trying to do. They weren't trying to become rich and famous. Uh, they didn't make something up and let's run out there and get rich and famous. They were they experienced the risen Christ, so they were constrained to run out there and let people know it's all real. I love this statement. Verse 16, we've got 16 going today, Chris, right? Second uh, Peter 1.16, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, and the King James says cleverly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majestic resurrection. Is that amazing? Now that's Peter writing in about 63, 64 A.D. Go back to the book of Acts chapter 10. Let's go to about 34, 35 A.D., 30 years before he wrote 2 Peter. Look at Acts chapter 10. This is Peter preaching to Cornelius and his household in the city of Caesarea. Many of us have been to Caesarea. It was the Roman capital of the region. And I love this when he gets to his bottom line preaching to this group of Gentiles in uh, Acts 10.39. Peter says, we, meaning the apostles, are unique witnesses of all the things Jesus did both in the land of the Jews generally and in Jerusalem specifically. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible to validate the reality of a literal supernatural resurrection. Not to everybody, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand. Not to induce faith, but to confirm the apostolic faith and the faith of other believers. That is to us who ate and drank with him. We didn't think we saw a spirit walking on the waters there. We talked to him. He ate with us. He drank with us after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one, this is the Messiah, this is the Savior of the world who's been appointed by God the Father as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, of Jesus Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, based on who he is and what he did, everyone who believes, isn't that wonderful? Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So the resurrection of Christ is a miracle, unabashed, not a myth, validated by consistent, reliable eyewitnesses like Peter, James, and John. It's the very cornerstone of Christianity. Uh, Bultmann uh, was a famous uh, 20th century theologian, and uh, C.S. Lewis said, uh, Bultmann, who denied everything worth believing, Bultmann tried to give us a Christianity without tears, by demythologizing the text so it'd be attractive to modern people. But what he ended up doing was he, he attempted to uh, give us Christianity with, without tears, but he ended up giving us tears without true Christianity. So the resurrection happened. It's not debatable. It's not negotiable. If that blows your categories, good. It's supposed to blow your categories. Of course it blows your categories. It validates the saving value of the death of Christ, and it's not just the basis of our salvation, but it's the basis of a stable, normative, joyous Christian life 
as the Lord will teach us in our passage this morning. Now, I want you to notice we're coming to the end of the second major unit in this wonderful passage we're studying, the Upper Room Discourse. Upper Room Discourse uh, clay is in John 13 through 17 in your Bible. It's in your Bible, and it will never go away. It's there. Those five chapters, the first part was a pattern for fellowship, what Jesus do. Fellowship with God frees you up to serve other people, even if they don't deserve it. Principles for fellowship, and the key principle was abiding in Christ, recognizing and responding from the heart to the one who has saved us. So we're not focusing on rules and becoming more like Pharisees. Dr. Deeg, we're becoming more and more like Christ, more obsessed, more focused in a good sense on Christ. And we're going to finish that section today, and then in the next couple of weeks we'll go to Jesus' prayer for fellowship. The key concept of the dynamics the absolute irreducible minimum of true biblical spirituality according to a pretty good source, right? The Messiah is that believers like Michael Birch or Katie Davis are to abide in Christ. It's relational, not just mechanical. To recognize and respond from the heart to the one who has saved us so in all love, respect, and obedience we bear real spiritual fruit. Now here's our passage this morning, verses 16 through 33, breaks down into two parts. Number one, verses 16 through 22. Believers, put your name in the blank if you're a believer. Rick Schoenelmeyer, Stan Heath, uh, Ron Stan, and my dad. My, today's my dad's birthday. And he passed in 2005. So very important day. I always thought November 30th was a cool day to have a birthday, right before December hit us. Uh, believers will have perplexity in the crises of life if we fail to rest in the reality and the implications of the resurrection of Christ. But the good news is, that's the bad news. Verses 23 through 33 teach the flip side of that. Okay, Nancy? Believers, Nancy Postalweight, can have E-O-T-H, eye of the hurricane, peace. The problems don't go away and we're not denying them. We deal with them but we have a much bigger context to put them in, so they're shrunk down proportionately. Believers can have eye of the hurricane peace in the crisis of life if we rest in the reality and the implications of the resurrection of Christ. Um, you know, one of the premises of this passage is anything you can see can be gone in five seconds or less, and everything you see is only t temporary. Uh, Reality is bigger than the now. It includes the not yet. Reality is bigger than the earthly. It includes the, the heavenly. Okay? Uh, there's a thing I call the Walmart uh, syndrome, which is different than the Walmart phenomenon, but I don't have time to go into Walmart phenomenon. But the older I get, the less I like Walmart. The older I get, the less I want to go to Walmart. But, and one reason for that is what I call the Walmart syndrome. It's very consistent with the biblical teaching of the temporary nature of reality. I don't know if this happens to you, but this happens to me. If I go to Walmart and I find a product I really, really like, like uh, pomegranate blueberry zone bars, okay, like uh, citrus salad in a, in a small glass jar. Those are two primary examples. I'll never get over this. Uh, if Walmart carries a product I really like, and I start going once a week or sending uh, somebody who lives with me once a week to get a Walmart to get my stuff, <laughs> within a few months, they will discontinue it. Have you experienced that? Can I get an amen on that? 
Well, I thought, that's the way life is. You know, as soon as you get used to something, it's gone. <laughs> We've been built for a person in a place, and that person has been here, and that place is heaven, and anything else is a bad substitute. Even good stuff that we enjoy is all temporary. Let's read verses 16 through 22. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I'll make some comments. Jesus says, and they're... And I've walked from the upper room, and they're on the slopes of Gethsemane. He's just about to pray and then get arrested. He says, a little while, and you, the 11 believing apostles who are the only ones there at the point, at this point, a little while, and you, and that's all y'all, that's plural in the Greek text, a little while, and all of you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. He's thinking, this is about 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock p.m. on Thursday. The crucifixion starts at 9 a.m. He's intimately aware of that. They're still pretty clueless, right? They still think he's going to overthrow the government and take over. That's what the plan is. It's not the plan. So he's saying, in a little while, like 12 hours, they're going to kill me. But then in three days, they're going to see me again, only in, in my real state, my resurrected state. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he keeps telling us? That's a uh, ingressive present there. What is this thing he keeps talking about? A little while, because he said this a couple times in his discourse, a little while and you'll not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. I'm going to the Father. What's he talking about? So they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Now we've seen that same kind of reaction. So I've, as, a, as a pastor in a pulpit now for 32 years, I often get that. I often get that reaction. We don't know what he's talking about. You know what? They said that to my Lord, so I'm going to take it as a compliment from now on. <laughs> Look at uh, chapter 14. We, another example of this kind of uh, incredulous reaction is uh, seen in this wonderful passage that I got to read and talk about at Dot's funeral a couple days ago. Jesus says, don't panic. Keep on believing in God the Father. Keep on believing in me. In my Father's house, you've got to go beyond the now to the not yet, beyond the earthly to the heavenly. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go, I'm going away, but you'll see me again to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am in heaven, you may be also. And you know, all y'all, 11, already know the way where I'm going, you're already saved. I want you to have complete assurance about that because you're no help to me if you're not sure what side you're on. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know. We don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? <laughs> and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm not talking about going across the Jordan to get away from the bad guys. I'm talking about going to heaven, and you're going too. No one comes to the Father but through me. So go back to chapter 16. So these guys are keeping it real, and they're pretty clueless about the reality at this point. But verse 18, we don't know what he's talking about. They should, but they're, they're kind of slow on the uptake, which is good because a lot of us are too today. Jesus knew they wished to question him. They knew He knew they weren't connecting the dots yet. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you'll not see me, and a little while you will see me? Let me explain. <laughs> Truly I say to you that you will weep and lament after the arrest and the crucifixion. But the world, the set of the unsaved, will rejoice. You will grieve, 
but your grief will be turned into joy. Let me illustrate this. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Ask Stephanie West. The memory, the memory fades over time, but it's still kind of fresh. Um, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. It goes off. Now, that's not true for my mother. She just told me this a couple of days ago how painful I was coming in the world. So we're going to pray this kicks in for her at some point. I'm 61, Mom. you got to get over it, right? Um, no longer remembers the anguish except my mother. Because of the joy, it's kind of a general principle, kind of a gnomic concept that a child's been born in the world. Therefore, you too have grief now. This is going to be painful. Buckle your seatbelts and hold on. When you feel like you're at the end of your rope, Henry, when you feel like you're at the end of the rope, tie a knot in faith and hold on. Because that's kind of what he's saying there. Because eventually all the questions will get answered. All of the scores will be settled. Uh, therefore, you too are going to have grief now, but I will see you again, like real quick, like on Sunday, Sunday evening for them, Sunday morning for Peter and John, for the group. And your heart will rejoice, and no one will be able to take that kind of joy from you. Embedded in this passage is some really important, critical truth Christians need to know about the nature of life and death. Right, Katie? Uh, the word death in the Bible doesn't mean extinction. It means separation. Spiritual death is relational separation from God. Physical death is the separation of our consciousness, our soul, from our body. So death is not extinction of our consciousness. It's the separation of our consciousness from our body. So we bury the body, but the soul goes to be with the Lord if they're believers or go to a place of punishment awaiting the great white throne judgment if they're not. Death is the separation of our consciousness from our body. Just to save time, but you might want to write these verses down. They're really key, critical verses that affirm that from Scripture, talking about the death of Rachel. Uh, it came about as her soul was departing, for she was dying, yada, yada, yada. The story, story goes on. But her soul is leaving her body. That's what death is. It's not extinction of your consciousness, and you're, that's all you are, and then you get buried or whatever happens to your body. It's the separation of your consciousness, your soul from your body. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, death for the believer is to be absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. That's quoting the King James Version, which I, I like that rendering there. And then in Philippians 1, Paul says, to de death is to depart and to be with Christ. So we've got to be clear on that, and that's what Jesus is talking about. You're not going to see my body anymore. It's going to be killed and put in a tomb, but you're going to see me again resurrected, reunited with the body, supernaturally transformed. Uh, so, here's our kind of exhibit A. When Christ died, after he says, it is finished, paid in full, his body was buried, yes? But his consciousness went to paradise. How do we know that? He tells the terrorist who believes today, you know, after they bury our bodies, really before they bury our bodies, today when we die, you're going to be with me in paradise, but they're going to bury our bodies. So there's a separation, not an extinction. When Christ was resurrected, a little while you won't see me, three days later you will see me. His consciousness went back into his physical body, supernaturally transformed. God could just snap his fingers and create a resurrection body out of nothing, ex nihilo, like he created the universe, time, space, matter, and energy initially. 
but he chooses to affirm the importance of the now by starting with whatever is left of your body. Now, in our Lord's case, the body had only been dead for three days. It was room temperature and stiff with rigor mortis, but it was still in pretty good shape. But let's say Abraham. Abraham died in about 2000 B.C. Wherever he was buried, there's nothing left except the atoms that made up his body. What about somebody who gets blown up on a bombing mission over Germany, World War II, just blown up? Nothing left. There's, it's all left. It's just the whole is greater than the sum of the parts when you're talking about human beings. You've got all the atoms somewhere floating over Germany, and they've since probably 10 foot down to the ground. But God's going to make it a point to use those atoms, put it all together, reunite your soul with your body, the uh, basic atoms of your body, and then transform it. That's what resurrection is. So I think sometimes people think resurrection means consciousness after death. We don't, the Bible doesn't teach that, Michelle. Consciousness after death happens for everybody. Believers go to be with the Lord. Unbelievers go to a place of punishment and a holding tank for the final judgment. Resurrection happens for Christ on Easter. It'll happen for church-age believers at the very initiation, resurrection, the reunion of your spirit with the body, what's left of the body, transform. It'll happen at the rapture event. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. So when we believe, when we die today, I don't mean like we're all going to die today, this day, November 30th, but I mean in this modern era, in the church age, our bodies will deteriorate, will begin to deteriorate as soon as it starts. Death, clinical death kicks in, biological death, I should say. But our soul's got to be with the Lord based on the previous passages. We'll be resurrected at the beginning of the end times. That's the reunion of your consciousness with your body supernaturally transformed. That's what resurrection is, right? Now, the point here is Jesus is basically saying, seeing me resurrected is going to totally change your reality. And what I mean by that, it doesn't really change reality. It changes their concept of real reality. The now is real and is important. But it's not ultimate, and it's only temporary. So we don't want to be so heavenly minded we're not earthly good, but we're not going to be very earthly good for very long unless we're heavenly minded. Because it's not, it's not the years, it's the mileage that gets you as you get old. And, and the fact you kind of accumulate, uh, seems like all your friends die on you and all your enemies live on forever. So that's just, that's just my experience. I don't know what happens to you. Uh, this goes back to a concept we saw Earlier in the um, Upper Room Discourse, the difference between joy and happiness, I'm going to try to make a case uh, every Sunday that happiness is overrated, okay? Joy is greater than happiness. Joy is found in the person and the program of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joy isn't necessarily loud ecstatics. Joy can have an emotional range, Kyleen, from ecstatics to stability based on your circumstances and your personality, Okay? So uh, I've told you the story about uh, in Shreveport, there was this pretty low-quality Christian radio station, which was the only thing I could pick up in my office. And they had a couple of sketchy preachers, local preachers on there. And one Sunday, uh, one, one uh, weekday when I was listening to this guy on the radio, bless his heart, I'm sure I'm not judging him. Whenever any, a preacher says, I'm not judging him, you know, you're about to judge the guy. But uh, probably a great saint. But literally he goes something like this. He goes, uh, great to be on the radio today, amen, praise God. I've got a wonderful message for you today, amen, praise God. And I want to start here, amen, praise God. 
The world is full of sin, amen, praise God. People are killing one another, amen, praise God. People are raping women, amen, praise God. They're stealing stuff. They're rioting. There are wars all over, amen, praise God. Lots of people have cancer, amen. I think, what are you amening, praising God for murder and mayhem and wars and cancer? That's not real. And I think sometimes we see we're supposed to rejoice not for all things. It does, never says that, Joe. We don't rejoice for abortions and pornography and drugs and murders and drunk drivers. We don't rejoice for that. It says rejoice in all things, right? So, but we tend to think that means we got to jump up and down and be excited about all. Uh-uh, Lori, that's not real. We rejoice in things, truths that transcend the now, even as we have to deal with the now realistically. And that means you may be joyous, but just stable, right? So joy is much better than happiness. Happiness, the easy way to remember this, I think, guys, is happiness is based on what? Happenings. So guess what? Uh, all other things being equal, Krista and I can say last football season, not this football season, but last football season and the last several football seasons, we were a lot happier than we are this football season. On the other hand, on the other hand, I believe in miracles, and if we beat OU, all's forgiven, Coach Gundy. Am I right? <laughs> it's all going to be good. Uh, yeah. So how in the world can we be realistic, 21st century educated people and lock into the not yet and heavenly? It revolves around the person of Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's a picture of Golgotha next door to the garden tomb in modern-day Jerusalem, you can see it looks like a, it does look like a skull. I think you can see that. There, there are the uh, eye sockets. Have you ever dealt with skulls? It kind of looks like one, the place of the skull. Skull. What happened on top of the place of the skull? That's where the Lord Jesus died for our sins. And because Jesus died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. How many of your sins were future, Ken, when Jesus died on the cross? Like all of them, 100% of them, Right? How many did Jesus die for? All of them, okay? It's not like you live for 30 years, get saved, and then now you're on your own covering your sins. Every sin Jesus died for was forgiven when you trusted in him, and that gives you a heavenly position. Paul calls it justification by faith. Now, we're going to leak some oil as we live our Christian life. And Jesus says, you don't have to take the bath of salvation again, but you need to let me wash your feet. You confess and isolate the issues you've got, but that's, um, that's a nice, uh, I took the picture, I'm not a great photographer, but I like that picture of Golgotha. What's that? That's the garden tomb. Because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins, but he's not dead anymore, contrast all the other world religious leaders, and his resurrection was literal, bodily, supernatural. And that's the key to everything because it does truly revolutionize everything. And only Christianity has God entering the human condition, doing all of the work, bringing all the merit necessary to get Carol Wander from Oklahoma to heaven. And we access salvation not through works, but faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What must I do to be saved? Acts 16.30, sorry. Although that was a good timing because that gets everybody awake again. What must I do to be saved? That's in the Bible, Myrna. Acts 16, 
30. What was the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But that's, there's no merit in that. All I'm doing is actively, receptively trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus to save me. Uh-huh, that's the way it works. So who gets the credit for salvation? The Savior, not the savee. Uh, and therefore, uh, as Paul says in Romans, God can both be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Okay, let's move from verses 20, 16 through 22 to the flip side, verses 23 through 33, these guys are panicking. They're perplexed because they're not sure what's going on. They're not factoring in the resurrection. They don't understand it yet. We've got the advantage of being on the other side of the timeline. So we're looking back at it. They're right in the middle of it. But uh, the principle here, verse 23 through 33, is believers, Dale Corbin, Debbie Corbin, can have eye of the hurricane peace even though the crisis is going to stay there in most cases, if we rest in the reality and the implications of the resurrection of Christ. Uh, doesn't mean we deny earthly reality. It means we put it in a larger context. Look at verse 23. In that day, after you see me as the resurrected Christ, you will not question me about anything. You can ask questions for information, or you can ask questions to second guess and to indict and that's the second type is what he's talking about. They still have questions. We all have questions. And they're honest questions. In that day, you'll not second guess me anymore about life and death. You're going to know viscerally that I've got control of life over death. And uh, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything, now in the context of this larger discourse, he said, once the, the, the dust settles, I want you to get the word out about me, Okay. So all these prayer promises to them is about them doing their ministry, but we rip them out of context when we read stuff like, boy, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he'll give it to you. So we say, hey, I need two pink Cadillacs, a new bass boat, uh, a set of uh, uh, tailor-made golf clubs, and a membership at uh, the territory. Like, by tomorrow morning at 10, Lord, I'm busy. You know, we tend to think we can just cram anything in there. This is not a blank check. We've already dealt with this in the discourse. Uh, this is, and by the way, the anything in there is not saying any stupid thing you might ask for, but any kind of thing, big, little, spiritual, physical, whatever you need to be what I want you to be, ask in prayer in my name. So prayer is not a blank check, but it is a vehicle whereby we seek and submit to God's will and when we pray in Jesus' name, we're not just tacking on a prepositional phrase at the end of the prayer. We're, and amen means so be it. We're saying, in Jesus' name, for his sake, consistent with his will, so be it. So just if you realize what you're saying at the end of your prayers, you realize you're saying, I'm seeking and submitting to your will, not giving you a to-do list. So he says, in that day, when you see me resurrected in three days from now, you're not going to second-guess me anymore about anything. And truly, truly, I say to you, even after I ascend to heaven and go back and I'm not walking around with you anymore, you can ask any kind of thing you need to do the mission I'm giving you and pray my name now because I'm the access way to God, the Father, and you'll get whatever you need. The risen Christ will not be limited in any way to give us whatever he deems we need and prayer is part of the way we seek and submit to that. And then he says... Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive. And that whole dynamic of being involved in that process allows your capacity for joy 
to get even bigger. So it's pretty important to pray in Jesus' name. I know some people don't do that because they say you're just tacking on the prepositional phrase. I don't think you legalistically have to put that, those, that English phrase at the end of a prayer to be praying in Jesus' name. But I'm going to do it just to make sure because if any way I can mess something up, I usually do. So I'm going to put that on there just to make sure, number two, especially in public. They asked me to pray at the Kiwanis Club. I'm a Christian minister. When I do a wedding, I'm a Christian minister. I remember one time somebody was upset I prayed for Jesus' name at a wedding rehearsal. And I thought, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not an atheist. I'm a Christian minister. I'm going to pray in Jesus' name. If that's a problem, talk to your lawyer. You know, I'll see you in court, you know, nowadays, right? That's probably hate speech, right? Verse 25, these things, the entire discourse starting in chapter 13, I've spoken to you in figurative language, kind of like, uh, you know, Old Testament types and shadows. You can't quite connect all the dots yet, but it's, it's the premise you're going to use later. Taking the bath of salvation, having your feet washed as far as processing sin, those kind of figurative things he's included in here. But an hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figurative language, in Old Testament lingo. We'll be on the other side of the resurrection. Uh, but we'll tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and watch this. I do not say to you that I uh, will, uh, let's see. And I do not say to you that I will uh, request of the Father on your behalf. Now, what in the heck does that mean? You can ask me for something, but I'm not telling you I'm going to request of the Father what you ask for. You might say he's kind of you know, purifying your request. But I think what he's saying is, and that's one way to theologically explain it, right? I'm not going to just ask the Father what you ask, because it may be Brad, it may be one of those dumb things you ask for me again. Uh, you know, that's true, I'm sure, but I don't think he means that here. I think he's being reassuring. He's saying, look, I'm going to be your advocate. I'm going to be your paraclete at the right hand of the Father. But I'm not doing that because the Father's reluctant to answer your prayers. I'm not protecting you from the Father. I'm just actively at work, not just in uh, the now, but in the not yet, not just in the present, but in the heavenlies as you throw up your prayers to God in my name. So he says, and I do not say that I'm going to, you pray in my name because I need to as if the Father's reluctant to respond to your requests, but I'm going to uh, take the request, as it were, and confirm it in the Father's presence. For the Father himself loves you. He's not reluctant to answer your prayers uh, because you have loved me and have believed that I've come forth from the Father. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father. It's called the incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1, 14. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world again and going back to the Father. Death on the cross, three days later, what? Resurrection, 40 days after the resurrection, ascension. That's when he goes back to the Father in that sense. So he's looking at the whole complex matrix of salvific dynamic there. Came forth from the Father, have come into the world. I'm now approaching my departure from the world and going back to the Father. By the way, Mike, that's the underlying premise of the Upper Room Discourse. That let me teach you stuff you need to know when I'm not walking around anymore with you so you can fellowship with me, right, Steve? That's what the whole thing's about. So that's always emphasized throughout this, these five chapters. His disciples said, now we're starting to see the picture. Now we're starting to connect the dots. Now you are speaking plainly and not using a figure of speech. Now we know, Lord, that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. 
second-guess you. Uh, by this, by everything we know about you, we believe that you came from God. Now, based on what Jesus says to them in response to that in 31, I think they're saying, we're good now. We've connected all the dots. We'll never have another doubt, never have another fear. We're okay. We've, we've, we've reached the, the promised land of spiritual total maturity, sinless perfection. And Jesus, probably with a smile on his face, you can ask him in heaven, Jesus answered them, responded to that. And he said, you guys really have it nailed down now? You guys really believe perfectly? Uh, you, you've arrived, no more doubts, no more fears, no more issues ever? Uh, behold, an hour is coming. Now that's being used meta, metaphorically. I don't think it was exactly 60 minutes necessarily. It might have been shorter than that. He's saying, you're about like real quick to go through a crisis that's going to shake everything you believe about me right now. But you'll get over it, and it will make you stronger. That's what he's saying. And again, I think he's saying this with a smile on his face and certainly love in his heart. Hey, we got it now. No more question for clarification. We believe you come from God. That's cool. You guys believe? You think you've really understood everything? The, the most dangerous person in the world is the person who just finishes seminary, especially a good one like Dallas where you do go through in-depth, you know, training, you get three years of Greek and two years of Hebrew, and some of us took extra and do all the stuff, you know, learn all, learn all the categories. Most dangerous person in the world is somebody who's graduated from seminary before he gets his first church. I'm telling you. <laughs> because you think you've got all the answers, and you've got a verse for everything, but quite often your answers are pretty superficial and need a lot of nuance and refinement. And that's, and, and that's when you realize we're never going to get finished here until we actually see the Lord. And even then, I think, you're going to spend all eternity learning more and more about the person you believe in. So he's kind of saying, hey, you guys think you've got it nailed down? Listen, verse 32, an hour is coming and has already come because the goons are already en route from the temple precincts to the Gethsemane. They're, they're on the march to come get me. And they've got a crowd like Jesus, the dangerous desperado. You, if you saw Passion of the Christ, it was a pretty good picture of kind of the chaos that happens when they arrest the Lord all not necessary. He's not resisting them. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, to hide like you don't have faith in me at all. Each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone. You know, uh, alone but not alone is a dynamic Christians have that keeps us going. Because my Father is with me. And then verse 33, these things, particularly this section about you're going to see me and not see me. You're going to panic, but it's going to be okay. These things I've spoken to you just as a general principle so that in me you can have peace, some kind of stability, eye of the hurricane kind of thing. In the world, here's a promise no Christian wants to claim very much, and it doesn't, it doesn't fit in the Joel Olstein's gig, okay? I know Joel Olstein is called America's pastor. They also call the Dallas Cowboys America's team. Who decides these things? I mean, we all know America's pastor is Randy Sutherland. I mean, you know, he was a favorite pastor like five years in a row, Duncan Banner, you know? And they even spell his name right, which they don't do me. But um, yeah, in the world, hey, Joel, how do you deal? He never preaches on this one. But all my friends have problems. I think I told Pam a long time ago, every Christian I know is either in a crisis, just coming out of a crisis, or just about to go into a crisis. So you buckle your seatbelt and you hold on. Um, as Mama Joe used to say, I can't wait to see how God's going to work this one out. 
You know, I say, no, I don't want to wait. I want this to be fixed right now. You know, uh, in the world you will have tribulation. That's a very particular Greek word, which is interesting. But take courage. I've overcome the world. Uh, promises, promises. The Burt Backrack song comes to mind. Here's one nobody wants to claim or they explain away. In the world you'll have tribulation. Not the tribulation of the end times, but philipsis. Very fun to say, very difficult to spell. It means problems, pressures, or stress. And uh, I'm teaching this course this semester on Tuesday nights, uh, University 1113, which is Study Strategies for University Success. Uh, I would tell you what it really means, but this goes over the internet, so I can't tell you what it really means. I might uh, have uh, explain it, uh, Ricky Ricardo, explaining to do. But let's just say they recently, we had to give them a, uh, an inventory that would determine if they're under stress. And trust me, all the 18-year-olds are terribly under stress. You can't believe how much stress they're under. And, you know, when I was 18 year old, years old, I thought I was under a lot of stress, too. But it gets worse. <laughs> it does. But I think of this verse a lot, especially recently. Uh, these things I've spoken to you so you know I'm in control. It's all going to work out. Everything's on schedule. Even your failures aren't going to mess up my plan. I'm going to make it work anyway with or without you, Brad. So you can have some kind of irene, some kind of stability in your life. And just keep doing what you can do. Uh, to my glory, in the world, in the cosmos diabolicos we live in, you're going to have pressure, problems, and stress. That's a promise, Steve. Okay? I like the promise in Psalm 73, which is a great psalm. It's Job in a, in a chapter. He says, uh, my heart and my flesh will fail. Okay? If you, you either die young or you grow old and then you die. That, that's what you get. Let, not counting the rapture generation. And we could be that. But take courage because I, the resurrected Jesus Christ, have overcome the world. So take this to heart. Just a, a wonderful passage and very, very important, really timely for, for Debbie and me right now, I think. Uh, there's the garden tomb. It's, it's empty. And it tells us that historically, theologically, reality revolves around the resurrection of Christ, and it revolutionizes everything about our concept of reality I like what C.S. Lewis said. We talked about the liar, lunatic, Lord uh, options. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not because I see it. You know, when you wake up in the morning and, and it's light outside, you can't see the sun, but you know the sun has, actually the sun doesn't rise, you know, the earth turns, but you, you know it's out there because by it, I see everything else. You can't see reality without understanding the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and buying into his unique claims. And then you can see everything else realistically, right? So the resurrection of Christ authenticates the exclusive unique claims of Christ, validates the saving power of the substitutionary atoning sacrificial death of Christ, and it integrates believers into this out-of-this-world, beyond-the-now point of view so we can have peace instead of perplexity as we live in the world. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I want to pray. The vast majority of us in this room, if not everybody, is a believer in Jesus Christ. We've trusted in your Son, and we've dared to believe that even though we've broken the rules and we've sinned and it's our fault and we can't fix it, 
that you love the world so much you gave him to live a perfect life, to die as our substitute, to rise again from the dead. We've trusted in this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. And as we walk in this world, uh, we have issues to deal with and, and painful circumstances around us. And even if it's not directly affecting us, it sometimes affects friends and loved ones, and seeing them in pain is excruciating to us as well. And so I want to pray that you would allow us to reflect just for a few moments here in the depth of our hearts on the, the, the amazing reality of the resurrection of Christ. Life after death is real. It's reality. It's, it's fact. It's not fantasy. The Lord has walked through the valley of shadow, victorious, and he says, because I live, you will live also. So help us to baptize all of the junk we have to deal with today and in the coming days in the glorious reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the lover of our souls who gave himself for the world and who redeems all who believe uh, so that we can be stable. Help us to, to be aware we cannot just look at the now or at the earthly and have a realistic understanding of what's going on. We've got to baptize the now in the earthly, in the heavenly, in the not yet. Unbelievers can't do that. Skeptics can't understand it. But you've given us the grace to embrace Jesus Christ, to believe in his sacrificial death and his literal bodily supernatural resurrection. Now, Lord, thank you for this reminder. That's the frame we're supposed to put everything around us in. Not so we can deny reality and dispel responsibility, but so we can deal with it consistently apart from perplexity and productively. And I pray we can do that to your glory this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.